Well, thanks, guys. Good job, especially to the right side on that uh, right side. trivia. Yeah. Though I think we are probably all can take away from that that we should could do a little more reading in the historical books of the Old Testament. Somebody on the left side passing out. Thanks. Yeah, those trivia things are fun. Sometimes, you know, it may not seem super relevant to know whose father Jezebel was, but um, it's good when you can pay attention and kind of bring those things together. And uh, sometimes you'll find things that look like trivia and actually they're not so trivial. There's actually connections that you can make from those. So it's good to always be paying attention and, and asking good questions when you're when you're reading. So how many of you have ever been in a situation where you had a problem, there's a situation, and you knew what you needed to do, but you didn't have much of a clue how you were going to do it? Ever been there? Yeah, when I was in junior high and high school, I worked with my dad. We would remodel houses. And one of the things that we do, not very often, but occasionally, was, um, we got extras? Awesome. Thank you. We would put up drywall. And we wouldn't put up, might usually be small areas. We'd knock out a wall, put up a little edge. And drywalling, if you haven't done it before, it's kind of tricky because you put up the drywall, but then you got to kind of make it look all smooth and, and nice. So that takes, you know, a little finesse. You got to put the mud on, then you got to sponge it down, and then you got to sand it down. And if you're like me and you don't know what you're doing, you put some mud on, you sponge it, you sand it just to kind of get it all smooth. And then you find out that you sponged and sanded off all the mud. So then you go back, you put more mud on, and you sponge it, and you kind of do this, this repeating process. And that's what happens when we, we, I knew what to do, pretty simple, put the mud on, sponge it, sand it, make it nice and smooth. Didn't have a clue how to do it. And so because of that, it kind of just went in circles. Well, the Christian life can be like that. If there's one thing that we know we should be as Christians, is that we should be like Christ, right? We're little, we should be little Christ's imitating Christ. Um, but how exactly do we do that? What does that look like practically? What does it mean to be like Christ? And how does the Bible say that we become like Christ? If we're not careful and we don't know what we're doing, we'll be like myself trying to put up drywall mud. We'll be just going in circles. We won't make much progress and we'll end up frustrating ourselves. There'll be a lot of activity. We'll be doing a lot of stuff but we won't actually be becoming more like Christ. And God knew that we needed to know how to become like Christ. And so he, he taught us through the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 311. Uh, he's going to give us three implications of union with Christ for becoming like Christ. This is a, a big section, but I want you guys to see the big picture here. Uh, because sometimes we can get so lost in the details that we lose the big picture of, okay, how do we actually become like Christ? And we're going to see that and how it flows out of our union with Christ. But before we get quite there, we need to get a little bit of a running start in the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae because he was burdened that the people there weren't becoming like Christ. They weren't becoming mature in Christ. And he thought there were, he saw that there were different false views about how you become like Christ. And the people were beginning to take those in and they're beginning to try to follow those. And so they're trying to become like Christ the wrong way. And he was burdened that they were going to lose out 
on actually becoming like Christ. Now, what's our big college word for becoming like Christ? Becoming holy. Sanctification, Sanctification exactly. So, sanctification, that just means becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy. So, in, in chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 8 through 15, Paul has just established the glorious things that Christ has accomplished for us by our union with him by faith. These are things that if you've been with us this semester in D groups on Wednesday nights, you'll be familiar with these things because they've been a lot of what we've been going through chapter by chapter in that book. What has Christ accomplished for us and how do we and what and what do we have by believing in him? Uh, so just to summarize, we see in, in these verses that in Christ we've been filled, in him our sinful nature has been cut out because we've been united in his death and his burial. In him we were raised by faith from the dead and made alive with him so we can now live to God. He forgave us all of our sins by removing them and by paying for them on the cross. And he triumphed over Satan and his forces who had held us captive as unbelievers. So Paul told the Colossians all that wonderful truth about God's grace and his saving us for a very specific reason. And that reason is that they would know what does that mean, all that wonderful truth about the gospel, about how we're saved? What does that mean for how we live as Christians? What does that mean for how we become like Christ? And so we're going to see here, in the end of chapter 2, we're going to see a whole bunch of ways that you don't become like Christ. These are wrong views that we can sometimes, we learn from other people, we learn from teachers, or maybe we, they're attractive to us, and so we're, we're gravitate toward those but they're ways that won't actually make us like Christ. Then in chapter 3, we're going to see how we actually do become like Christ. So I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 16, and what's the first word there? Therefore. Therefore, exactly. Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. What's the first word? Since. Since, or depending on your translation, therefore. It's the same word. And then you can probably guess now, Chapter, five, or chapter 3, verse 5, the first word is therefore. So all of these three things are uh, therefore. That introduces something that means, okay, because of what happened before, there's something that that means. And so we're going to find three things that it means. We've got three therefores, and that's going to kind of break up our text this morning. So the first is going to be a therefore, because you've been, with, been united with Christ, Therefore, all these ways of becoming like Christ, they don't actually work. They're not true. Then we're going to find two things in chapter 3, where because you've been united with Christ, this is how you do become actually like Christ. So, um, with that, we're going to get into these um, three implications of union with Christ for becoming like Christ. And the first one is, uh, like I said in chapter 2, and it's not by humanly wise methods. Is that first blank? Um, not by humanly wise methods. As there's a lot of things that look like they're wise. They look like they're actually going to bring us to Christ-likeness, but they won't. So let's read the text in chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, uh, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence." So Paul goes after all kinds of wrong things, wrong thinking about how you become like Christ here in these verses. Uh, looking at the beginning of verse 16, uh, we see that no one is to act as your judge. The beginning of verse 18, we see no one, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Verse 20, if you have died with Christ, the elementary principles of the world, do not submit yourself to decrees. So he's concerned there's these teachers that are teaching wrong ways of becoming like Christ, and he's concerned, he's burdened that you guys are going to fall prey to this, and then you're not going to actually become like Christ. So we'll look especially at verse 18 just to see the burden of Paul in this passage, because he gets very clear with this term, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. It's a very specific term, and it's, it's a sports term. So I, I played basketball junior high and into high school, and so I'll kind of use that as the analogy. So let's imagine um, my team never got very far in our league's tournament. But let's just imagine that you're on a team, and they did make it. You're in the final game, and you're kind of coming to the end of the game. You're down by two points. The set clock is ticking down. You're running out of time. You get open. The point guard gets you the ball. You drain a three-pointer. Buzzer goes... You won the game. You're excited. You're celebrating with your team. You've won the championship. You have, there's the trophy. The prize is yours. But then a ref comes up with some technicality. And he says, well, you know, because the, the league's rules are that you need to keep your jersey tucked into your shorts. And as you were making that three-pointer, just the corner of it came untucked a little bit. And so you violated the league's rules. And so that, that three-pointer doesn't count. So you actually lose. What just happened there? The referee made a decision based on this ridiculous technicality. And so rather than winning the game, you've now lost the game and you've lost the prize of victory. So what does that teach us about what Paul's saying about sanctification? He's saying that someone might do that. Someone might take your prize of victory that you would win by faith in Christ. And they're going to make some technicality and rule and they're going to steal that from you because of convincing you of some wrong way of sanctification. Sorry about the microphone. Trying to get that here. That better, James? All right. So what's the prize that Paul is talking about? Now, one possibility was that it's our salvation. But that really wouldn't make sense because we know we can't lose our salvation, and that's not what, what we see in the context. It's not our glorification. We know that if we are true believers, Christ will bring us all the way. As we saw in D groups this past week, we will be made like Christ. But what Paul's concerned about is that you not grow the growth that's from God. You see that in, chapter, in verse 19. 
So we could really sum this whole section up as don't get snookered out of your sanctification. Don't let some wrong idea about how you become like Jesus make you try some wrong way and then not actually get sanctified and get, get cheated out of that prize of Christ-likeness that you really ought to have by faith in Christ. So now that we've seen what the thrust of this section is, uh, Paul's going to kind of work his way through and weave through a number of different ways that we might have wrong views of becoming like Christ. The first we see is legalism. We could say sanctification by symbols. That's your letter or subpoint A. And Paul just kind of weaves these through here. And in this one, we could say sanctification by symbols or if you like, sanctification by shadows. Uh, you see in, in verse 16 that there's these people that are acting as their judge. They're, they're judging them in respect to this list of things that is all concerned with regulations that God gave for the people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, that were intended to point them to Christ. Paul says they were shadows. And just like if there's an object and the light's behind it, it's going to cast a shadow. And when you look at that shadow, you're going to get an idea of what the object looks like. But when the light moves in front of the object, now the shadow's gone. You don't need it anymore because now the, with the light in front of the object, you can see the object itself clearly. And that's what those kinds of things were. They were simply intended to point to Christ. But these people were taking those and they were elevating them that were really now just preference issues. And they're elevating them to you must do this if you're going to be holy. If you don't have our preferences and all these other little things, you're not going to be like Christ. And they were judging them because of that. You know, we do this today, all kinds of things, outward things that, that we look to and we're like, oh, that person's more holy because they do this. Symbols even that God's given us, like communion or baptism or, or even gathering as a church. Those are all good things. The Lord gave us those things. But do those in themselves make us holy just by, just by doing that? No, they don't. And so if you focus on those and elevate those and, ah, this is how you become holy, then you're not going to become truly like Christ because you'll be missing the real heart of the matter. You'll be missing the fact that, wow, this thing actually points to Christ. If you take communion and you're just like, ah, by eating this and drinking this, I become more like Christ, you're missing out that, wow, this is supposed to actually point me to Christ. And if I believe Christ by faith, then that makes me more like Christ. But just doing this is not going to. So another idea, and this comes up in verse 18, is that you become like Jesus by your own resolve. We could kind of say this as sanctification by willpower. And to see this clearly, we need to look uh, at some words here a little bit closely. Um, we have the words here, um, by delighting in. And that word delighting is, um, could literally be translated willing. It's to choose or to um, make a resolve about something. And then you see next, self-abasement. That word is, is the word for humility. Uh, but clearly it's not a real, genuine, spirit-produced humility. Uh, this is kind of a, a self-deprecating humility. And so it's, it's rightly translated self-abasement here. And then the worship of angels, uh, that, that idea there is the, the religion or the uh, kind of outward acts that we think of as religious uh, that that was delivered by angels. It's a bit of a tricky verse, but that's kind of, the, I think, the best way to understand it. 
Either way, the, the main idea is clear. We could put it all together and say in verse 18, let no one deprive you of becoming like Jesus by relying on willpower to, to crank up humility or by uh, grinding out religious law-keeping. You're not going to be able to just use your will and say, oh, I'm going to become humble. I'm choosing to be humble. If I just get a strong enough resolve to be humble, then I can be humble. That won't work. We see it again in, in, if you drop down to verse 23, these same words come up again. He says, these matters have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. Uh, that's actually a compound word. The first half of that is that word we saw in verse 18 of, of delighting or willing. And the second half of that word is, is religion or, or worship. So it's the same idea he's talking about. Uh, Self-made religion and self-abasement. Again, that's that, that false humility idea. So he's coming again at this, you're, you're cranking up your willpower like, I'm going to be holy, I'm going to obey, I'm going to do what God says. And you're just trying to grind out your sanctification. This uh, we can fall prey to sometimes because, you know, like, okay, I'm going to be humble. Oh, I just so bad. I feel so bad about myself. I'm so terrible. I'm horrible. I'm just not that great. And you think you're humble. But what word in that little line of thought that I gave you, what word came up the most? I. And true humility is when we're not focused on ourselves. The false humility is ultimately focused on self because you're just like, oh, I'm so bad. I'm so terrible. I'm worthless. I'm no good. And you can get there by, by just willpower. But to get the, the true power of humility, that takes the Spirit's strength. We get into the power of willpower religion too, especially you know, in a church like ours, a context like ours, we, we emphasize the need to be holy the need to live a righteous life. And if you're not careful, you can get the idea, well, okay, I need to be holy, I need to live a righteous life, so I just need to just really get a resolve to do that. That's not bad. It's good to be resolved to obey. But if you imagine that that's where the power is going to come from, if your ability to obey is going to come from your ability to resolve to obey, then you're going to find yourself misled and you won't truly become like Christ. Now, verse 18, if we continue on there, we're going to see another way that you can be snookered out of your prize of sanctification, and that would be experimentalism, sanctification by feelings. So we've seen uh, a sanctification that's by um, symbols. We've seen a sanctification by willpower, and now we have a sanctification by feeling. Um, and this is what he says when he talks about taking his stand on visions. Um, or what he has seen, literally. The ESV says, you know, making careful searching and inquiring into what he has seen. The idea here, which is wrong, is that you can become like Jesus by the things you experience. By, oh, I had this really intense feeling of closeness with God the other day. And if I can just hang on to that feeling of, of that experience of closeness with God, if I can just continue that so I always have that feeling of closeness with God, then I'll be like Jesus. This is very common today, especially I think among people in, in your and in, in my generations where we, we think that if I can just get these feelings and have these feelings of, of just contrition before God or just these feelings of the greatness of God and just be awed by that, 
and hang on to those experiences, then I'll be like Christ. Well, there's nothing wrong with those feelings. They may be a great gift from God that he may give you a time of close communion with him. But to rely on that as power for sanctification is a recipe for disaster. You'll be back like me drywalling and you'll be trying to put mud on. You'll think, this is going to make me like Christ. And then you'll find that that didn't didn't work. And it'll put you in a cycle of of just trying and having all this effort. You know, it looks like a lot's going on, but, but nothing truly is happening. To use the analogy of a car, our temptation is to make our feelings and what we've experienced to be the engine or the steering wheel that, that drives it and that controls it when in reality our feelings should be more like the, the cushions in the seat. That they are great, they're a benefit. I love that there's cushions. Um, it'd be kind of a bumpy ride and a little, little hard to, to stand much of a long drive if there wasn't for that. But those can't be in the drivetrain. So the result of all these things we're going to see in verse 18 is he's inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. This is somebody who, who becomes proud. They're puffed up by a mind that's just focused on sin and the things of this earth. Their mind hasn't been transformed. And so all these activities, all these things that they think are making them like Christ are in reality puffing themselves up. They're becoming proud through them. So in this point, you may be feeling a little bit, okay, if that's how I can't become like Christ, how in the world am I going to? Uh, and Paul, Paul knows that you might be feeling that way, so he gives you a little preview in verse 19 of how you do by, by describing in the negative what, what the wrong way is. He says how they're not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, Christ is the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. So these, um, these people weren't holding fast to Christ. They weren't clinging tightly to him. And we're going to see in chapter 3 a little bit more clearly what exactly that means. It means that you're holding tightly to your union with Christ through faith and that from that you're living a life that's closely connected to him. That'll become ex- clear hopefully in chapter 3. But what he says is that from Christ, the entire body, that's the church, the local church, is supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments. Literally, those are the connection points. Don't miss what he's saying. Christ grows the church. And it's the growth of God that the church experiences. But it grows by the connections between the members, the relationships, we could say, in the church. If you're wondering why, as leaders, we're constantly telling you about the importance of the local church and why you must be connected and intimately involved with your local church and why once you graduate and get a job and go off to college that you must, more important than finding a college and finding a job is finding a church. Well, this is part of the reason why. Because we know what Christ, uh, what Christ through Paul says here, that the local church and those relationships in the local church are the means that God uses to grow you and grow me with the growth of God. So if you want to grow the growth that's from God rather than growth that you're just trying to crank up of your own power, then get closely involved in your local church. Get closely involved in those relationships. And that's how Christ grows his church. So that's a little preview that we can see. But in verse 20, Paul is going to turn now and we're going to see yet another wrong way of looking at becoming like Jesus. 
This is externalism. Or we could say sanctification by separation. Sanctification by separation. The idea here is if I can just get far enough away from all the sinful stuff and people, then I can be like Jesus. He says, and he, he emphasizes this with a rhetorical question because he knows it's a temptation for us. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? There's a lot that he says here. Um, but the decrees that they were submitting to were, were these things of don't do this, don't do that, don't come near this, stay away from that over there. And the thought at first seems, ah, it's ridiculous. How do you become holy by not, by not touching this thing? Well, we, we often think of this, and it's really actually common. I've seen it in churches, especially in homeschool circles. The idea comes to develop in your mind that, okay, the world out there is evil, and so what we need to do is just build a big enough fence between our church here, or our family here, and the world out there. And if we build that fence big enough and tall enough and thick enough, then we can keep the evil out there and then we can be holy and Christ-like in here. Well, what does that miss? Where does evil come from? It's come from your heart. So you build that fence tall and now all you're doing is your evil just bounces off the fence and comes right back at you. And so you're not getting rid of the evil. You're not becoming more like Christ. Should you let worldliness into your life without, without any filter? No. But does that itself make you holy if you just keep the world out? No. You can't be sanctified by separation. Maybe that's helpful. Maybe you have a filter that keeps that worldliness uh, from influencing you in ways that it shouldn't. But that alone and that itself is not going to become like Christ because the sin comes from your heart. So Paul sums up this section and brings in one final wrong view of sanctification in verse 23. And that's asceticism, uh, which is a, a fancy word that, that kind of gives that idea of severity to the body. Or we could say sanctification by misery. Um, he says, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement. We've already seen Paul touch on those. And severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, the logic here is kind of, okay, I sinned. That was wrong. I don't want to do it again. So if I can make myself feel really miserable about the sin I did, then I can convince myself to not do it again. And so you basically punish yourself, whether through some kind of self-harm or some kind of um, physical punishment, or maybe it's just an emotional punishment. That's probably more common. We're like, okay, I just need to feel really, really, really bad about this and punish myself with it, and then I won't do it again. I'd say I kind of did this quite a bit in high school, where I would sin and I, I wouldn't want to do it again, and then what I would do is, okay, I just need to make myself feel so bad about this that I'll never want to touch that sin again. Well, it didn't work. I, I would go back. It would work for a little bit, uh, for a little while, but then that would kind of wear off and then I would go back to that sin. And so it did not actually make me more Christ-like, though it had the appearance of it. It looked like it did. And that's what we need to be on guard against here because these things, he says, have the appearance of wisdom. They, they look wise. They look smart. And these are tempting because 
you know, they, they give approval from people oftentimes. People will see the things you're doing in these different ways of sanctification and, and they'll like them. You kind of see that when he talks about them being according to the commandments and teachings of men. Uh, these are quick fixes. They promise that, hey, if you just do this, you'll be like Christ. Well, the reality is we're going to see is a lot of hard work. And so maybe if, maybe if I can just do this and be like Christ, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe I can, I can follow that. So they, they have the appearance of wisdom, but as he says, they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. They're not worth anything. All these things, they just feed the flesh in other ways. They just kind of take, take it like a river that's flowing in this direction, and they kind of rechannel it to other ways. They maybe rechannel it from more outward sins to more self-righteous kind of sins. But the flesh is not actually put, put to death. This idea of no value is just so, um, so ruling out any option of these methods as being helpful. <laughs> it's like you could take, you could go home, grab your copy of Monopoly and take out all the Monopoly money from it. And then you take that and you stuff it in a wallet and you head over to Walmart. Now, a little kid who sees you or maybe someone who's looking from a distance and not looking very closely, they might see, oh man, he's got a wallet stuffed full of cash. He's really rich. And so you go there and you get, grab a bike off the shelf and you go up to the, to the cashier and you're like, I want to buy this bike and you start laying out $500 bills and $100 bills and I can now buy this bike. Are you going to be able to buy the bike? No. What if you have just a little thing of candy? Are you going to be able to buy the candy? No. No, it's of no value. It's monopoly money. It doesn't actually have any value there. Same thing Paul is saying here. All these things, they, they look maybe to an immature person or to someone who's not looking too closely, who isn't close in your life, it may look like you got to have a lot of Christ-likeness, may look like you're becoming like Christ, but when it comes down to it, they are of no value. They're going to do nothing against the flesh. All right, so that was a lot of content to soak in. We've, we've seen all these different ways that we don't become like Christ. Uh, he's exposed sanctification by symbols, sanctification by willpower, by feelings, sanctification by separation, sanctification by misery. None of these work at a reality level, but they sometimes look like they work. And so they can be attractive because they make sense on a human level. We can figure out, okay, that makes sense. That, that's rational to my human logical mind. Um, they give us approval from others. They promise quick fixes, but it may leave you wondering, how do I then become like Jesus? If none of that works, what is of value against the flesh? What does make me like Christ? And so that's what we're going to see in these next two implications of union with Christ. And so again, keep in mind the big picture. We've been united with Christ. He's done all these things for us in the gospel. First implication is we can't become like Christ in all of these ways that we've just seen. Now we're going to see the next two implications. We do become like Christ in these ways. And number two, implication number two, is by promoting heavenly priorities. This is going to be in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. By promoting heavenly priorities. So he says, therefore, again, that's tying back to, to what Christ has done for us in the gospel and how we received it by faith. If you have been raised up with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. This is just so exciting. Paul's finally telling us, this is how you are sanctified. This is how you become like Christ. And he ties it in to our union with Christ in his resurrection. And the, the imagery here, we, we are familiar with it because we see it in baptism. Uh, if if you've been with us and been coming to our church, you've been blessed because we've had a lot of baptisms lately and we've been able to see that. And I love baptisms and, and you should too because not only do I get to hear how God has taken another sinner and by his mercy has transformed him into a Christian and into a saint, but we get to see that pictured, how God unites the sinner with Christ and the death and resurrection. Have you ever wondered why it is they dunk the guy under and then lift him back up? Well, it's to picture that very reality that you've, as a Christian, if you're a believer, you've died with Christ, been buried with him, and you've been raised up with him to newness of life. That is what baptism pictures, and it's the reality there. If you're a believer, that's happened. That happens the moment you're a believer, whether you've been physically baptized or not. And it's that reality that Paul's pointing to here that if you're a believer, you have been raised up with Christ. And so therefore, because of that, you are to keep seeking the things above and you're to set your minds on the things above. Those are the two commands. Keep seeking and set your minds. Uh, the idea of seeking is to promote, is to exert significant effort to try to obtain or to promote what it is. And the idea of setting your mind, that's, that's your mindset. That's the habit of your thinking. That's the pattern of where your mind goes and what it is resting on, what's going through your head. Both of these are to be on the things above, uh, which is further described as where Christ is. And, and he says that's because later in verse 3, because Christ is our life. And so our seeking and our minds are to be on the things where Christ is. Those are the things that matter in heaven, the things that are going to have an influence there. You know, you could, just to give some examples, you know, if, if I share the gospel with someone and that person is saved, then that's going to matter in heaven for all eternity. If I speak an encouraging word to a friend and give some truth to them and that helps them in their walk with Christ and they become more mature in Christ, that's going to matter for all eternity in heaven. Those are the things that Paul says we're to be intent upon, that we're to be promoting. We could say, kind of in summary, that he, we are to have these spiritual things, these spiritual priorities, be our goal and our preoccupation in all of our life. So how, what does that look like? Does that mean that you never do schoolwork because that's just earthly stuff? No, Paul's going to make that clear in the rest of the chapter how this plays out in all of our relationships. But, you know, are you doing schoolwork? Well, you need to be doing that with a heavenly preoccupation and a heavenly priority, a heavenly goal. How can I do this to the glory of God and not just to please men or please my teacher or to get through this? Are you having a conversation with your parents and you're not quite liking the conversation? Maybe it's a bit confrontive and they're dealing with something or they're telling you to do something you want to do? All right, well, how do you please Christ in that? You obey your parents. You submit to them. He's going to get into that specifically in Colossians chapter 3. We won't be able to get to that today. But that is what having a heavenly 
goal and a heavenly preoccupation looks like in all those different relationships. It doesn't mean we don't do things on the earth, but it means that whatever we're doing on the earth, we have a goal and we have a preoccupation that isn't focused on just things that are going to affect earthly stuff. We're focused on, wow, I'm with these other people. How can I point them to Christ? How can I show Christ's love to them? How can I be obedient to Christ in this situation and please him? So the, the reasons of why we're to do this are then given in verse 3. There's an answer 4 that begins that thing, and that, that 4 answers the question, why? So we ask, okay, Paul, why should these heavenly things be my, my preoccupation, my goal? Well, it's because of, of what he says here, that Christ is our life. We have died. It's not ours anymore. Our life is hidden with Christ. And when he is revealed, then we will be revealed with him. If, if we say something is someone's life, I have a friend who, when he was in high school, baseball was his life, he says. And what do we mean by that? It consumed him. It was what he was all about. He was always about baseball. That was what his focus, as he was thinking about, that was his goal. Everything was about baseball. Paul says that's how we're to be now. Christ, we've died to the world. The things that just affect stuff in the world, that shouldn't matter to us anymore if we're believers. It's now Christ in his things. So if, if this is true, that, that Christ is going to be revealed and we're going to be united with him in his glorification, when all the earth sees and it's no longer by faith that we know that Christ was raised from the dead, but everyone can see there's Christ risen from the dead and we're going to be there with him in his glory. And that should cause us to pull all of our energies into harness in order to have these heavenly goals and priorities. So our third implication, implication number three, we, how we come like Christ is, is by killing earthly inclinations. That's in verses 5 to 11. Um, so we become like Christ, not by what appears humanly wise, and it's by promoting heavenly priorities, and it is by killing earthly inclinations. So I'll, I'll just work through this quickly. You see in, in verse 5, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And if you have the NASB, you should see a little number one next to consider. Um, and then that'll correspond to either on the side or on the bottom, you'll see another little one. And it'll say, literally, put to death the members which are upon the earth. And if, if you're somebody who highlights, or even if you're not, but whatever you do, underline, highlight. I would highlight or underline that footnote because that's really a, a better idea. It's, it's not just about a matter of thinking about it. It's a matter of actually actively putting to death the members that are upon the earth. This phrase, upon the earth, he's already talked about it. As we're not to be thinking about the things on the earth. We're to be thinking on the things above. And so the, these parts of us that are intent upon the earth, we need to be putting those to death, he says. Paul gives examples of this. In, he gives some lists in verse 5 and verse 8. The first list in verse 5 is kind of on a family of sins. They aren't random lists. They're about families of sins that are all connected to each other. In list 5, he's talking about sexual sin. In verse 8, he's talking about sins of anger. In the first list, he works from the outward manifestation of sin to the inward heart motivations. In the second list, he works backward from the inward heart attitudes to the outward manifestations. And so you can see how in verse 5, he works from immorality all the way down to greed or covetousness, which is idolatry. That's the foundation of sexual sin is a wanting more, a covetousness, which he says is idolatry. Then you look in verse 8. And we have these sins of anger. And it starts with anger. That's a, a disposition or attitude of anger. 
and then it comes out all the way into these fruits of anger, of slander and abusive speech or, or evil talking that come out of our mouths. So what's Paul trying to teach us with these lists? That they work from the outward to the inward and then the next list from the inward to the outward. He's saying that we want to kill sin. We can't just kill the outward and not deal with the inward. It's not going to work. We have to kill it down to the root desires and heart motivations. My, my in-laws have a lemon tree in their backyard. And let's just say they were redoing their backyard and they want me to say, okay, Daniel, we want you to, to get rid of that fruit tree. Just kill it. I'm like, all right, that sounds like fun. Great task. I'm going to go kill that tree. So I go in and I go in and I pull off all the lemons and then I just throw them on the ground and I'm smashing them, I'm stomping the lemons. Is that going to kill the tree? No. No. Okay, That's not, that didn't do it. The tree's still alive. Okay, now I go and I take all the blossoms that aren't lemons yet and they're gonna, I know they're going to become fruit later. So I pull off all the blossoms and I tear them apart. I rip them to shreds and there, done. All right, I'm done. Now the tree's still there, right. Okay, well, let's pull off all the leaves. Okay, so I pull all the leaves off the tree. And then I do all that. Uh, is the tree still there? Yes. Now, I don't know if, I, maybe I can cut off some branches. I don't know, do lemon trees, do they grow back if you get down to the stump? Not all trees do. Some trees do. Okay, they do. Perfect. Well, so let's say I did, and I take a chainsaw. All right, I'm really going after this thing. I take it, and I cut it down to the ground. Boom, the tree's gone. But what is there underneath the ground? There's a whole root system that typically that's even more in volume and mass than everything that you can see above. You can't see it, but it's there. Same kind of thing with our sins. We can't kill sin if we're just taking the fruit and stomping that up. That's not doing anything. We got to go down. And so we work down from those outward manifestations. We work all the way down to the roots in our hearts. Then we have to put all of those to death. Now, how we do this, killing is, is, like I said, metaphorical. There's not something actual living, physical thing that we're putting to death here, like a tree. Um, it's a metaphor. And so Paul explains that metaphor with another one, <laughs> which is of clothing. He says in verse 9 that we're to not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So we're putting off the old man with his practices. That's the person who was us before Christ, the old Daniel, the pre-Christ Daniel, and everything that he did and everything that he wanted, putting that off and putting on the new Daniel who's been created in Christ and is being renewed into the image of Christ. That's what we're to do. So it's a, a getting rid of those old actions and desires and a putting on of new righteous actions and desires. This is going to be spelled out in the rest of the chapter where he's going to fill out this whole idea of putting on. But this is how we put to death sin. Now you may have noticed that verse 9 begins with a command, do not lie to one another. And at first glance, it looks a little out of place. What's that doing there? Why does he just say, hey, okay, there's all these sins of anger and, then, and don't lie to one another and, and put off and put on. It's just kind of random at first glance. Well, I believe that what Paul's actually doing there is he's highlighting the importance of truth-telling in this process of killing sin, of putting off and putting on. Think about it. If you go to the doctor because you, you have really bad pain, you go to the doctor and say, Doc, I need help. And then you go and he starts asking you about your symptoms and you just lie. His symptoms is down here and you say, oh, it's up in my shoulder. 
Is that going to help him be helpful to you? No. Is he going to be able to help you much? No. He's not going to help you because you're lying about your sin. Or you could just even not go and just, uh, someone sees you like, man, it looks like you're in the pain. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not in any pain. I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> well, that's not going to have someone help you. You're not going to be helped in whatever medical problem you have. Same thing with sin. If we're lying to one another, if we're not actively telling the truth about what is going on in our hearts to one another, if you're not doing that with your parents, if you're not doing that with your, your leaders, then how are you going to grow together? How are those relationships in the body of the church going to be used as means for God to grow you if you're lying and not telling the truth? So this is just a key area, and that's why Paul highlights it here. Well, as verse 11 points out, one of the great results of becoming more and more like Jesus is that the distinctions that used to characterize us, they don't anymore because we're all becoming like Christ. We're all being sanctified. And so he, he points out all this list of, of distinctions. You know, we could say whether you're homeschooled or public schooled, whether whatever your religious background, whether you come from a Christian family, a non-Christian family, whether you're cool or nerdy, whether you're a geek or you're athletic, all these distinctions, and let's be honest, in junior high and high school, the human heart makes a lot of those distinctions. Oh, this person's athletic. This person's overweight. This person looks pretty. This person doesn't. This person's cool. This person's not. This person's into music. This person's into sports. We make all these distinctions and we divide off from our friends by them. But Paul says none of that should be true in the body because you're all becoming like Christ. If you're a believer, you should be looking more and more like Christ and the per believer next to you should also be looking more and more like Christ. So you don't look like the old you. You look like the new you, which is Christ, which means if you're all looking like Christ, then all those distinctions, they're gone. Their basis has been brought out. As he says at the end, Christ is all and in all. It's all Christ. And so if I'm looking more and more like Christ, and I see someone else who's really different from me, and he or she is looking more and more like Christ, then those distinctions, they, they don't matter. And so that is how Paul says we become like Christ. We have our focus on and our goal, our preoccupation, be those things that are heavenly. That's the consuming desire of our thoughts. And we put to death the evil practices all the way down from the outward to the inward, all the way down to the heart motives. So I've been speaking throughout to you who are believers um, and I've said that often, we who are believers. Well, maybe I know some of you are not believers. Some of you have not come to Christ yet. They've not been united by faith with him. Well, this is your opportunity because this is how you can become like Christ. This is not how you become into Christ, but you've been learning how that is by faith in him, by renouncing your old ways and turning by faith to him, repentance and trust in him. If you're not in Christ, all you have is all those things we saw in chapter 2. That's all you got. It's just outward. It just is hard work, and you're not going to actually get anywhere with it. You know, maybe you're someone who you, you maybe think you're a believer, but those things that you're looking to as, as fruit that you, you think is giving you assurance, maybe if you look at those closely, those are all chapter 2 things. Those are all things that aren't actually sanctification. They can look like it, but it's not the real deal. So if that's the case, you need to talk to your parents. You need to talk to your leaders and, okay, how, how do I truly become like Christ and truly be united with him? But for those of you who are believers, here's your blueprint. 
Here's how you become like Christ, that central goal of our life as believers. You live by faith in light of your union with him and what he's done for you, promoting the heavenly priorities, making your goal and preoccupation the things of Christ, and seeing the others around you like Christ, and then killing those earthly inclinations, putting off your old self, putting on the practices of the new, all the way down to your inner heart. And the grace of Christ is his power that does it. It's the growth that's from God. And so my prayer is that that will be more and more characteristic of all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and your truth, how you give us with such clarity what we are to do and how we're to do it so that we're not left wandering around unsure of ourselves, but we know how to become like you, Lord Jesus. And we ask that you would give us the grace to grow the growth of God, that you would bring that to each one of the students here, that the church would grow in in numbers and in the spiritual maturity of, of each of us. Lord, we need your grace. We can't do this by our own strength. And so uh, we ask for your power. And I pray for each one of these students that you would strengthen them this week, um, that you would give them um, the power to live out their union with you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, guys. Do you have anything, Roy?